Good evening, everybody. I'm Anne Power. I'm a professor in social policy in the school, um, and I've been asked by the sustainability team here at LSE to introduce this lecture by Satish Kumar, which is a huge, huge pleasure and honour. Satish Kumar is probably one of the most inspiring people around the sustainability world, partly because he does very, very extraordinary things like walking 8,000 miles with no money and no plans of where he's going to stay from India to America in order to protest about nuclear weapons, partly because he did the same around the UK, very much with the same sort of mission. Mainly because I met him in the mid-1970s in a community house. Sorry. I'm trying to wreck my introduction. <laughs> uh, set up by the student Christian movement in a place called Wick, um, where very radical uh, students with a spiritual idea about making the world a better place here and now um, involve Satish. I actually don't know how they involve Satish. I just know that he was a bit of a guru. He was sort of friend. <laughs> yes, he was a bit of a guru, a bit more than a friend, um, for, for this group of students trying to do something radical for the here and now, but with a bigger understanding that there was more to life than just material benefits. Um, and I think that sort of combination has come home to roost, really, because we've discovered that um, material benefits run out of steam and oil runs out of the ground and coal makes the air too dirty and we're really very stuck as a result. And we were just having a discussion with um, a group of students before the lecture, which raised that very issue. How do you actually have a very aggressively, progressively modern institution like the London School of Economics teaching students to be absolutely where it's at in the modern political and social economy, while at the same time worrying about the future and its sustainability, its long-term future. And I don't think there's anybody who could tell us more about that. I just want to make one reference to my own experience. In the 1960s, I was involved with the American Civil Rights Movement, and one of the things that Martin Luther King said, often in defense of nonviolence and the kind of more spiritual approach to peaceful uh, progress uh, that Satish has always adopted, and I think it's a very powerful way of summing up an important idea. The means are the end in the making. So how you do things and the way you approach life will actually shape the kind of life you have and the kind of life we'll all face in the future. I think that's really a bit of a signature tune for what Satish is going to talk to us about. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you. And we really look forward to hearing what you've got to say. Thank you. <coughs> thank you very much, Anne, for your very uh, kind introduction. And uh, we have a few things we discovered in our life history in common. When I walked around the world, I was inspired by Bertrand Russell. Is it a bit too, too, too high? And uh, that was 1961 when Bertrand Russell 
um, protested against the nuclear weapons. And he sat down and said, I'm not going to move, or we are not going to move, maybe there was a committee of 100, until the government bans the bomb. And Anne was part of that campaign. And Bertrand Russell was arrested. And he was sentenced to one week's imprisonment because he was disturbing the peace of the Queen. And I was a young man of 25 at that time, sitting in India, in a cafe, in Bangalore. And uh, when I was waiting for my coffee, I picked up the newspaper and read 90-year-old philosopher, Nobel Prize winning, Lord Bertrand Russell, in jail, because he was protesting against the bomb. And I said to my friend who was with me, E.P. Menon, I said, look, look, read this news. Here is a man of 90 going to jail for peace in the world. What are we doing? Young men sitting here drinking coffee. And so he read and said, what should we do? Let's do something. And so in the end, after a long, long talk and a few cups of coffee, we decided that let's join the international peace movement against nuclear weapons led by Bertrand Russell. And let's walk, because if you go by train or plane, nobody will listen to you, but let's walk to Moscow, to Paris, to London, to Washington, D.C., four nuclear capitals. And, and then we went to visit our teacher, our guru, Vinoba, and he said, if you are going for peace in the world, then you have to be peace. And peace begins with trust. And wars begin with fear. So go without any money in your pockets. That will be the demonstration of trust. That you trust people, you trust the universe, you trust yourself, and through trust, peace comes. And so that was a quite a big advice. And in the end, if, you guru give, if your guru gives you advice, you have to take it. You can't be dilettante. So we decided to accept that advice, and we walked from India through Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, Moscow, Europe, Paris, London, and we met Button Russell. And he said that when you wrote to me from India, just beginning of your walk, I didn't think I will see you. I was 90, I didn't, I'll see you, but you walked fast. <laughs> and I'm still around here to welcome you. But you can't go to America without money. Can I give you some money so that you can fly to America? So we said, you are right, we cannot walk on water, but we want, don't want any money. And we don't want to fly. We would like to take a boat. 
if you can arrange for two tickets for us that'll be wonderful we'll take ticket but not money and so he kindly arranged tickets and we sailed across the atlantic in the queen mary <laughs> wonderful luxurious boat and arrived in new york and walked to washington and ended our 8000 mile journey and that journey itself gave me the idea of sustainability i was just talking with some of the students uh, in the room bef uh, before the meeting i was saying that sustainability the word sustainability has to be really examined and properly defined because the word sustainability being used overused misused abused and therefore we have to really be alert that how the word sustainability is used so uh, sometimes people are using word sustainability for keeping the business going making your business as <laughs> usual but sustainable so you can keep going so i was using the word sustainability in living practice in your life you have to create your communities resilient and therefore particularly your economy has to be such that you are not dependent on this complete complete dependence on fossil fuel everything all our lives our business our politics our homes our agriculture our food our refrigeration our transportation everything is dependent on one source of energy fossil fuel and now we are faced with peak oil oil is running out and we have we have to go deeper and deeper and deeper like in the gulf of mexico we just experienced the accident and finding that oil in difficult places so the oil is in short supply and coming to a stage when we will not have the same amount of oil in the same cheap and cheap and very cheap price and even if the oil was plentiful still using so much oil is producing greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and creating global warming and climate change so one we don't have so much oil and the other even if we did it's not good to use in such a way so we have to learn to live in a different kind of economy this globalization of trade at this moment our prime minister has gone to china with biggest delegation uh, ever taken to china and before that he went to india with 90 people in his delegation putting a lot of fossil fuel uh, use greenhouse gases a lot of carbon emission when you fly all this uh, big delegations and i wrote uh, a letter to david cameron when he went to india i said india is more than a market india is a landscape of culture and unless you also embrace the cultural aspect of india just looking at india or china as a market for our goods and trade and commerce that's a new kind of i mean i didn't say new colonialism but but it's a kind of i can say to you it's a kind of 
trade colonialism, that you are looking at these countries as a market. So we need to look at these countries like China and India more than market. And our relationship has to be based more in culture than just commerce. Commerce is good, trade is good, if it is in small measure. I'm not against trade, but trade has to be in smaller measure, like icing on the cake. Now, our government is so worried about uh, uh, millions of people living on benefit. And they want to, not only they want to cut down your student uh, grants and, and charge you big fees, but they want to get people uh, in work and away from benefit. I said, yes, but where is the work? We have more or less destroyed our work. Only the main business, main industry, main source of income for people, the biggest business in England is not land, not manufacturing, not agriculture, financial services. Now, financial services are fine, like trade is fine, if it's in small measures. But if our whole economy is based on just financial services, it's not a resilient economy. It's a very fragile economy. And we are going to become dependent on markets around the world, in China, India, other countries. And when there's no fossil fuel, there's no, uh, there's no cheap oil, how are we going to sustain? And we are creating a whole British society of de-skilled people. All the skills are gone. What at all the graduates coming out of LSE, what are they capable of doing? Can you grow food? Very few. Can you build a house? Hardly. Can you make your clothes? Perhaps not. Can you build your furniture, chairs and tables? Perhaps not. Can you mend your shoes? Perhaps not. What are your hands for? Maybe you can use computer keyboard. That's all. What, what, what is our education? De-skilling the society. And we say we are highly educated. The classic economics, when the London School of Economics were established, had a wonderful idea. The classic economics was based on land at the top, labor in the middle, and capital at the bottom. Land, labor, capital. That was the wise, sane, intelligent order. Now, where's land? Land is only, if it's a, if it's a commercial property, it's a value. But it's money terms. We have no interest in agriculture. Only 2% of British people are engaged in agriculture. Everybody, 61 million people are eating food. But only 2% of people are engaged in producing food. And they, they are worried that we have so much unemployment. They are worried that, uh, that, uh, 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 that people are so much on benefit. The jobs have been destroyed. So I would like to see if land is the first top priority, classic economics, then I would like to see 5, 10, 15, 20% of people working on the land. Those who wish to work on the land, they should have land, even part-time. <coughs> you don't have to be full-time farmer, everybody. But, I mean, I have only two acres. But even that two acres gives me so much food. I'm 80 to 90% of my vegetables and fruit come from my own place. So we all can have some land and 
people can be a bit, that would be a more resilient and more sustainable practice and sustainable living <coughs> if we had access to land. We should have skills. I started school in my village, Heartland in North Devon, and I said, all children will learn to cook. And our school will have a garden where children can grow vegetables. In cities like London, Birmingham, Manchester, inner cities, Liverpool, Tokyo, Mumbai, uh, New York, students who are in schools, they don't know where the food is coming from. They think that food is coming from Tesco or Sainsbury's or some supermarket in a little, little plastic bag. Because quite a large number of children are suffering from nature deficit disorder. They don't know what nature is. They can recognize BP and Shell and Tesco and, and, and Nike and Sony and all these labels, but they don't recognize which is ash, which is oak, which is cherry, which is apple tree. They don't recognize. So we need to bring back that kind of uh, um, economy, which is land, labor, capital. Then that will be sustainable. Labor. Human beings have become instruments of making profit. We, human beings have no other value in our financial economic system other than are you making profit for the company you are working for. If you are not making good profit, you are not an efficient worker, you are not creating um, uh, uh, money, supply for the company, fired, sacked. So the value of human beings have been reduced to how good job you are doing. That's not economy. That's a disaster. That's not sustainability. So I would like to say that economy and ecology must go together. And economy and ecology come from the very same Greek words. That are three words. Eco is oikos, logi is logos, and nomi is nomos. So what is eco, oikos? Oikos is home, household. And in the wisdom of the Greek philosophers, they did not think that home was just a limited home where you have your living room and bedroom and, and a kitchen and a bathroom. The home is a bigger idea. Home is our earth home, planet home. The entire planet is our home. And all the species on this planet are our kith and kin, our family members. Can you imagine the wisdom, the, the, the grandeur of the vision of the Greek philosophers? They saw the earth is our home and all the species, the birds flying in the sky, are our brothers and sisters. Lions and tigers and snakes and a deer and a fox and, and all the animals in the forest, they are our brothers and sisters. St. Francis patron saint of ecology. He believed in the same idea of ecos. So the whole planet is our home and all the species upon this earth are our family members, kith and kin. Our modern um, industrial uh, scientific paradigm, we have put human beings at the top. We have said the nature is out there. The trees and the birds and the, 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 the animals are uh, nature and we humans are separate from nature. We are not nature. We are the superior species. 
we are suffering from not nationalism anymore, maybe. We are getting rid of racism, we are getting rid of sexism, but we are suffering from speciesism. <laughs> the speciesism that human beings are so superior, so special, so privileged, that whole nature can be sacrificed for the benefit of humankind. So we can cut down the rainforest. Day after day after day, hundreds and hundreds of acres of rainforest is being cut down. We can do it because it, we can grow meat, we can have McDonald's, uh, cheap, cheap meat, but rainforest, what does it matter, it goes. We can overfish the oceans, we can put the animals in factory farms. Look at our farms and the way we treat our animals like they are our enemies, the cruelty in factory farms of pigs in small spaces, the cows, the chickens and all other, and the fishing, the way we fish, the fishing. So we have taken for granted that the entire natural world is and should be at the service of humankind and the only value of nature is in terms of its benefit to humans. That's a disastrous philosophy of scientific and, and economic revolution that we have created. And if we want to have a sustainable practice, sustainable living, and a real sustainability, we have to change that mindset. And we have to say that we are nature. Nature is not just out there. Humans are as much nature as the trees and the animals and the birds and the bees and the wasps and the earthworms and the soil and the rivers and the oceans, etc., etc. We are nature. You know what nature, what does it mean? Nature, Latin meaning, root, natura, natal, nativity, means birth. What is born is natural. What will die is natural. So when a mother is pregnant, she goes for prenatal check. After the birth, postnatal check to see the midwife. Natal word related to birth. Nativity, soon we are going to have Christmas and we are going to have nativity play, meaning the birth of Jesus Christ. Nativity play. So nativity, na native even, and natal and nature, they all come from the same root. So we are nature. We are not separate from nature. We are not disconnected from nature. We are not above nature. We are as much nature as anything else. And therefore what we do to nature, we do to ourselves. And if we pollute the rivers and oceans and overfish, we are damaging our own lives. If we are cutting down the rainforest, we are damaging our own lives. Because we are all interconnected. We are all interrelated. We are all one universe. Uni means one. So one verse, one poem, one cosmos. We are all uni members of this universe, this earth home. So ecos is earth home. And logos means knowledge of home. So ecology means knowledge of home. At the moment when in universities ecology is studied, it's put in a very reductionist way. And you will take one species and just study one species. Our, our study has become very reductionist and a very minimal specialist. And we, we are unable to see wood for the trees. We are unable to see the whole picture. We don't teach in ecology, in sustainability, how all the species are interrelated, how we all fit together 
We are not separate. So ecology is not studied properly. If you study ecology, then you will have understanding of the entire earth and how all the things fit together. So ecology means knowledge of the earth home, understanding of the earth home. And economy, ecos and nomos, nomos means management. So first you have to know what you are going to manage. Now, all the, our universities and London School of Economics as a leader, world-class university, you get students from all over the world, from India, China, Africa, America, Europe, Russia, everywhere. And we are sending these thousands upon thousands of young graduates know how to manage, but they don't know what to manage. Because there's no ecology. Nobody has studied ecology. You are studying development, you are studying finance, you are studying um, uh, management, you are studying um, economy. And particularly financial economy is the dominant economy. Land is not there, labor is not there, it's the economy. Now, you tell me you are a highly educated person here, people here. How are you to manage something if you don't know it? If you are managing your home and you don't know where your bathroom is, where your living room is, how many, how many uh, children are in the house, how many uh, members are in the house, you don't know it, but you are going to manage it. And therefore, in my kind of slightly mischievous way, I wrote a little, little outline and I said, it would be a wonderful radical step for LSE to change its name and call it London School of Ecology and Economy. Because economy cannot be sustained without ecology. All our economy is dependent on natural resources. If there are no natural resources properly managed, properly looked after, sustainably managed, we cannot have economy. So if we are sending your half-educated people in the world to manage the world, what do you expect than having a mess of our economy? At the moment, our economy is in a mess. American economy is suffering, Chinese economy is suffering, Indian economy is suffering, British economy is suffering, French, German, all the big countries. No wonder that economy is in a mess because it's being managed by half-educated. They know economy, they don't know ecology. They don't know nature, nature. They don't, don't know land, they don't know people, they don't know labor. They don't have any understanding of natural resources and sustainability. So half-educated can be worse than uneducated. Because world problems of economy and banking crisis and credit crunch are not created by uneducated uh, graduates or uneducated ungraduates of Africa, peasants of Africa, or farmers of India, or um, craftsmen of, uh, of South America, Peru. They are not created. The problems are created by highly educated Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, Harvard, Mumbai University, New Delhi University, all these big, big universities. Educated people. They are running our economy and they have made a mess. So we have to challenge that and say we need to go back to the first principle of the original forefathers who established universities like LSE, who put land first, labor second, capital third. Financial services are fine, but without land, what is finance? Money is just a figure on the computer. Money is not wealth. 
when um, our government says the bankers are wealth creators we cannot tax them because they will go away to other countries because they are the wealth creators they are not wealth creators in my view they are wealth destroyers what is wealth wealth is not money money only a measure of wealth only a means of exchange only to know how much wealth you have in terms of money the real wealth is land natural resources forests animals human human communities human intelligence and talent and imagination and ingenuity and creativity these are the wealth land and labor is the wealth the capital is only to oil the wheels to make things manageable to make things go smoothly so you created this wonderful idea of money and capital but now the money and capital has become the ruling philosophy and land and labor and nature and forests and trees and animals and communities and human beings everything has become an instrument to make money that is completely unsustainable if you are really serious about sustainability you have to challenge your fundamental assumptions a financial model of economy is completely unsustainable we have to go back to ecology to nature to environment to land to forest and that wealth if you protect them you enhance them you replenish the forest and you manage the oceans properly then you are wealth creators but if you just churn all this natural world into money then you are wealth destroyer so banks are not wealth creators in my candid and challenging world view so now how we do it how we do it apart from changing lse's name to lsee london school of ecology and economics but every university i would like to say has to have ecology and economy studied together if you walk only on one leg one leg one leg one leg walk you limp and in the end you're tired you fall down so you have to have two legs ecology economy ecology economy together then you are sustainable then you can sustain your society and when you have ecology then we have to look after our patch of the land and we have to make sure that uh, resources are replenished we cannot just go and say we'll pay you money and we'll buy your forest we'll import our wood from this country or that country we'll import our food from this country or that country this local economy trade is fine as i said like icing on the cake you can have a trade in goods which you don't produce locally fine but at this moment our trade is not in things which we cannot produce locally our trade is in things which are plentiful in other places but still we can make money by selling a few penny cheaper i give you a very ridiculous example french water perrier water or avian water is sold in scotland the lorries are driving fossil fuel being burned and and carbon emission is being emitted all this water is going to scotland and what is happening from scotland to france the highland water is being transported in these lorries to france what's wrong with french water 
in France and what's wrong with Highland Scottish water in Scotland. That's a, that's a kind of economy created by half-educated economists of our universities. <laughs> and, and no wonder that we have our environmental crisis. No wonder that we have peak oil and oil is running out. Well, we have been wasting it like nobody's business just to get a few pennies extra. If you had trade, honest and good trade, then you will say, in Scotland, we cannot produce wonderful champagne or wonderful wine, and France has such a good grapes and such a good climate. You produce good wine, but we make good whiskey. Let's trade in whiskey and wine. That's sensible. That's because French don't have whiskey and Scotland don't have wine, so they can trade. So trading in things which you do not have locally, then is ecological economics. Because you are taking care of your environment, your ecology, your natural resources, and managing it frugally. But when you are trading water, and you can, I can give you hundreds of examples. I live in Devon. Devon butter. Devon is famous for butter and cream, clotted cream and butter. Wonderful. But you go and look in shops, Devon butter, try to find it. No, there's no Devon butter in Devon. Where is the butter from in Devon? New Zealand. Anchor butter, cheaper than Devon butter, and plentiful available everywhere. And where is the Devon butter gone? Exported somewhere to France or to, to Japan or to Russia, somewhere. Because it's such a good butter, so wealthy people can sell it, or even in Harrods or, or, or big shops, in fancy shops in London, the Devon butter, even clotted cream. In, in fancy shops. So that kind of trade, when we have our own butter, I can give you many examples, but the idea you get is very simple. What I'm speaking to you is no rocket science. It's not an academic philosophy. It's not an academic kind of facts and figures. It's a common sense. But unfortunately, common sense is no longer common because we are so blinkered in our thinking, money and finance, services and financial economy, that we have forgotten the whole picture, the big picture. So sustainability in practice has to go from uh, just economy to ecology and economy together. And we have to, again, I want to repeat this the idea that we human beings are somehow so special, so superior, so important that all the nature has to be sacrificed for our benefit. That idea has to be challenged. And we have to be a little bit more humble. Human means humility. The word human and humility come from the same root. So we have to let go of some of our human hubris and human arrogance and pride that we are so superior species. And we have to say that we are part of nature, we have to be in nature and, and ecological. So we have to make this change from this collective ego of human hubris, from ego to eco. This is only small change from G to C. And you make a big quantum leap. You make a big change from ego to eco. And eco means relationship that we are all related, we are all connected, and the species, all the species upon this earth have a purpose, have a meaning. Read E.O. Wilson's Biophilia, 
It's a, it's a kind of, it's a meaningful. Uh, everything, everything in this existence has a meaning. It's not just there for plundering and, and, and uh, destroying and, and just ignoring. Everything has a meaning, has a purpose. And we have to understand that purpose. And that's where the spirituality and compassion comes in. We have to develop a love of nature. We have to develop a reverence for nature. These are spiritual terms which may not be heard easily in a university like LSE or big other universities like London University or Oxford or Cambridge University. But love and compassion and reverence are important ingredients for sustainability. Because I don't want to join the environmental movement or sustainability movement which is driven by fear. Fear of doom and gloom and disaster and peak oil and oil running out and, and, and global warming and climate change and resources depleting. All this fear is not going to lead us in the right path. We have to have a more spiritual attitude, which is that we live frugally but elegantly and comfortably. Earth is, is abundant. There is no shortage of anything if we use it carefully and frugally. When Mahatma Gandhi said, there's enough in the world for everybody's need. Need is a very important word. Enough in the world for everybody's need, but not enough for anybody's greed. So what we are, is we are wasting our resources because of our greed. And even when you don't need certain goods, you still have to buy. You still have to make and produce and consume because without production and consumption and buying and shopping, our economy will collapse. What kind of economy, irresilient, fragile economy we have built that even when you don't need something, you have to buy it in order to keep people in jobs. That's a very, very unsustainable economy. So I, don't, I would like to have some questions from you and, and, uh, and have a more uh, conversation, but what I'm saying to you, the sustainability in practice is a very simple matter, but needs a great transformation of our consciousness. It's a great transformation of our psychology, our attitudes, uh, uh, from sort of what I call ego to eco, a more relational uh, attitude. Unless we can develop all our degrees, BA, MA, PhD, in finance, in development, in economy, and all these are just wasted without wisdom. And we have lost that wisdom in our education. Education has become so factual, so reductionist, so literal, that we have lost this sense of human understanding and human wisdom and human spirit. Without human spirit, you can have 10 degrees and you can still destroy the world. So please forgive me if I have been a bit harsh in my words, a bit candid, but I thought that I'm in this wonderful, great university. I should open my heart and, and open to you so that at least I have, I have spoken. Even if I'm a bit harsh, please forgive me. Thank you very much. Okay. Fine.
then lots of people can say okay, what they want. Okay, you speak and then you speak. Yeah, yeah hold on. Hello. Uh, hi. I'm Purva Tavri and I'm from environmental background. I'm doing my study in biomimicry and I would like to know, does biomimicry imply sustainability? Does what, sorry? Does biomimicry imply... Does biomimicry? Biomimicry. Yeah. Okay. Biomimicry implies sustainability. Biomimicry? Can you put, put a little bit further from, away from you? Because so, okay. this yeah. echo is not so good. Okay. Biomimicry? Implies sustainability. Implies sustainability. Good. Yeah. So we'll yeah. good, 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 good. Yeah. Okay. So this gentleman here in the middle. I noticed when you were speaking tonight, you kept mentioning the change in the mindset of people. And the LC is the center of capitalism. I studied economics many years ago, and I've lived in an economic society. But the word of the mindset is to change the nature of the word greed. Because the LSE and the capitalist model is built on one factor, the human nature's factor called greed. greed. And so if we just take the statistics of the UK, which we're living at the moment, 1% of the people own 70% of the land. I live in a place in south of Spain, and I've come back to your lecture, and I've come back to be in the Cotswolds with friends. And in the Cotswolds, which is an area is owned by two people, the Duke of Bedford and the Duke of Gloucester. And that goes from Warwickshire to Oxfordshire, <coughs> right across to Gloucestershire. So if there's 1% owning 70% of the land, where are we going to get the land unless we go back to the old days of the Chartist? And if you remember what happened in the days of the Chartist, they killed the people <coughs> and destroyed them. Okay. okay, the land you talked about again, and it, there's the answer. You tell me where we change this. Okay. Um, We'll just take those two and then we'll take some more questions. Yeah, so, yeah. does biomimicry help sustainability yeah. and the what do we do about the land? Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, biomimicry very much is an integral part of sustainability. And what we have to learn from nature, we cannot learn from humans. My mother used to say that tree is the greatest teacher. If you go to a tree, how, and tree is a symbol of all nature, there is no waste. Human society creates waste. The land fills up full. Ships of rubbish and garbage is going around, find, looking for places to dump the garbage. In nature, there's no waste. At this moment, we are in the autumn, the leaves are so beautiful. I say sometimes to my young people, young friends, I say, if you think that um, old age is not beautiful, look at the autumn leaves. <laughs> the leaves become food for the worms and, and nourishment for the soil. So this, this is a very simple example to see how we can mimic biology, how we can copy and learn from nature. We should study not just about nature, but we should learn from nature. That is biomimicry. There's a wonderful book, I'm sure you have heard of it, but other people may not have heard of it, a woman called Janine Benias. 
She's an American scientist. She's, she's like uh, Rachel Carson, one of the very wonderful writer and scientists in America. And she wrote this book called Biomimicry. And she is giving many, many examples of how we can create. I mean, look at the packaging of nature. You have a banana, sweet, delicious banana inside, but outside leaf, outside uh, banana cover is, is very perfect sort of packaging. And then you can put it on the compost. The orange has wonderful um, packaging. The, 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 um, the orange peel, you can put the compost. It will go back into nature. You can take many, many examples. So yes, the answer is biomimicry is an integral and essential part of our sustainability. The second question is about land. It's a very important question. It's a very big question. And I don't think I have really an answer to how we change this capitalist system. I think this whole idea of socialism and capitalism both have been anthropocentric. We have to move from socialism and uh, capitalism to something like naturalism, where we are all nature, humans are part of it, and we all take care of natural world. So for me, uh, we have to shift from capitalism. Capitalism is not giving the answers. And we have seen the mess, we have seen the failures of capitalism. Still people have not, they, they want to go back to, uh, to business as usual. They are hoping that we will get away from this uh, recession and we will be back into a uh, production system. So, and the capitalism also ownership. So we have to move from the idea of ownership to relationship. Humans cannot own nature. We cannot own trees and the soil and the land and the rivers and the mountains and the forests. They are gifts from the universe to all living beings, not just for human beings, but for animals, for birds, for wasps, for bees, for all creatures. So nature is a gift. It's not something we can own nature. So we have to move from ownership to relationship, from capitalism to naturalism, from socialism to naturalism. Now this is a big task. Your question is very big. How you build a movement which goes from capitalism to naturalism, that is something we have to, we have to become leaders. We have to become uh, agents of transformation and change. You are all, we, we cannot wait for some messiah to come like Martin Luther King or Mahatma Gandhi or, or Nelson Mandela. We have to take leadership in our own hands. And, and, we, and please don't wait for uh, the Westminster or the Parliament House or the 10 Downing Street or President's House to create a resilient, sustainable future for us. We have to take matters in our hands. It has to be a people's movement from the grassroots, transformation of consciousness, transformation of mindset, and living a different kind of sustainable life in our own lives living close to the land. Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. So if we set the example and be the leaders to communicate our examples, 100 people here, if you communicate with 10 other people, it'll be 1,000. And if 1,000 people communicate with 10 other people, there'll be 10,000. And 10,000 communicating with other 10 people will be 100,000, 100,000, exponential. So we have to be part of that big movement like civil rights movement in America, like independence movement in India, like women's movement and feminist movement, which has big, brought about big change. So these big changes come from the grassroots level. 
And so we have to be the leaders and not think business is bad, government is bad, somebody should lead, why other people are not leading. No, we cannot wait. We have to be the leaders. And so then capitalism can be tackled. Hi. Um, it looks like Britain will remain a capitalist country for the foreseeable future. Is there any sort of compromise you could offer how we could become more sustainable whilst remaining capitalist, which it seems that we will? So how? Um, become how more sustainable? Can, how, given that Britain is likely to stay a capitalist society, is there any compromise possible yeah. with sustainability? Yeah. Yeah, okay. okay, there was a second person somewhere over there, yeah, there, and then there was somebody else over here, yeah. Hi there, thanks very much for your lecture. Um, you mentioned that t currently 2% of people work on the land, I'm here, 2% yeah. <laughs> um, of people work on the land while 61 million uh, eat food in this country. How might we make it more attractive for people to work on the land, particularly young people to work go into the profession of yeah. agriculture? Yeah. Hello, uh, thank you for the lecture. Um, following on from Gandhi's quote, uh, there's enough in the world for everyone's needs, I'm wondering how we determine what we need. How do you decide how we need? Eh? How do you how decide we... what we need? Yeah. So compromise with capitalism yeah. first. Yeah. Take that one first. Then we'll okay. Okay. I have a out here. Two questions. Yeah. Okay. So first question is that given that we have capitalism. Now, capitalism is not God-given. So given, we have to challenge that word. It's not given. It's not God-given. It's not given by the universe. It's created by humans. And what is created by humans can be changed by humans. It's not an impossible task. I mean, as I said, very examples. We had colonialism, we changed. We had male domination of women, changing, and quite a lot has changed. We had no civil, when I went to America, met Martin Luther King, black people had no vote. 40, 50 years later, a black man is in the White House. You can say, given that we have racialism, given that we have blacks and whites, what can we do? So certain things you cannot compromise. So as far as nature is concerned, we cannot compromise. Nature is paramount. The protection, the conservation, the, the replenishment of the natural world and, and the ecology of the natural world and the sustainability of the natural world is non-negotiable. Otherwise, we are cutting the branch upon which we are sitting and will fall down. If we destroy the natural world, and just say capital, 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 finance, finance, money, 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 we will fall down. So take it for granted from this um, um, Indian, Indian person that economy, <laughs> capitalism cannot survive without natural nature being in good heart. There's no compromise. So what is created by humans can be changed humans. We have to change capitalism and we have to Proclaim this with a loud voice that nature comes first. And if nature is gone, economy will be gone. If nature is gone, banks will collapse. If nature is gone, our jobs and employment will collapse. Everybody will be in the street. If, if uh, global warming, climate change, nature destroyed, oceans polluted, rivers polluted, 
There's no compromise. Capitalism has to come to an end sooner or later. And we have to have a naturalism. I'm not advocating socialism. I'm not getting, advocating anthropocentricism. All isms should be wasms apart from naturalism. <laughs> and what about the 2% of the land? Yeah. How, how can we make working on the land more attractive? Yeah. How, how can, can we, we make more? Yeah. about that change? Yeah. I think in Britain we have very good law about allotments. So if you can find your council or some way where you can get an allotment and if you can just for weekends, if you can work on the land, that's a good beginning. Then if there are some people in your area, in your neighborhood, where, this is your, it was your question, land? Yes, yeah, your question. So if you have a garden, an owner who has a big garden, but they don't have time to garden, they have too much space. In Devon, in Totnes, we have 40 gardens, we call it garden share, where garden, owners of the gardens have no time and no energy, they're older, they don't have sort of capacity to garden, so the young people say, we will garden your garden and we will share the vegetables and we will share the fruit. And it's, the apple trees are there, the vegetables are there, the flowers are there. Forty gardens like that. So go for allotment, go for shared garden, and then build a movement and negotiate even with big landlords if you want to have a five-acre um, small holding or uh, a few animals. Negotiate and say, look, in India we negotiated. My teacher Vinoba went from landlord to landlord to landlord, sort of convincing that we have to share the land. And he collected four million acres of land and distributed among the poor and the landless. So such big movement can be built even in England. No, no, sorry. Even Prince Charles can be, can be convinced. We can, we can be, we, we have to build a movement. That's what I'm saying is, it's not something overnight. The immediate action I'm saying is that allotment, garden share, and even if you have a little window box, try to grow something in your window box. Touch the soil. Dirt, dirt is not dirty. Remember this uh, simple uh, wisdom. Dirt is not dirty. Get your hands dirty. Get your hands in the soil and grow some, some tomatoes, grow, grow some um, even herbs, thyme or rosemary or, or lemon babina or some mint or something. Get in touch with the soil. Where there's a will, there's a way. If you really want, you will find the land to work. So going on to the Gandhi challenge, that yeah. there's enough for what we need, but not for our greed. How do we decide How what we decide, we need? yeah. There is no one else can decide for your... Who asked this question? This yeah, yeah. There's no one else can decide what is your need, but you. And therefore, we have to create a culture in our society, where each individual is encouraged to look into their needs and say, what do I really need? How many pairs of shoes I need? How many, what, how much do I have in my wardrobe? How many cars I need? How many houses I need? How big house I need? How big car I need? All the time you have to ask that question. And that question has to be part of a social and, and a kind of cultural, uh, cultural um, phenomena. Because at the moment, our culture is to encourage you 
to buy, to shop. If you don't shop, the economy will collapse. So we have to create a new culture. And that new culture can only be created when you promote education, information. I mean, I've been working uh, to promote that education through Resurgence magazine, which I have been editing for the last 38 years. And, and so we have to communicate that idea. And, and that can be communicated. Big movement can be built. I'm an optimist. I, I am like Obama wrote a book called Audacity of Hope. So we have to go out with audacity of hope and optimism and say, we can create a better world. A better world is possible. And that better world is possible when we are making beautiful things, useful things, durable things, which we love, we care. We think, ah, this jumper is handmade and, and somebody, somebody knitted it for me and I love it and it lasts me for 10 years. That kind of new culture of elegant simplicity and a beauty and aesthetics. We have to create a culture. At the moment, we are mass-produced, ugly. You buy one season, fashion change. Um, who was this who said, uh, one of your English writer, who said, fashion is so ugly that we have to change it every six months. <laughs> Do you remember who said it? No. I think Oscar Wilde, I think. Oscar Wilde said. The fashion is so ugly that we have to change every six months. So let's, let's, go, let's transcend and create a new culture and young people like you can create that new movement that we are not going after fashion, we are going after beauty, sustainability, durability and all that. Beautiful, useful, durable. And so it has to come from your own heart. Nobody can dictate, it's not, we are Democrats. So it has to come from a heart revolution, it has to come from a change of consciousness and be the change you want to see in the world. And set an example. And, you, and even if nobody follows you, go alone. My great poet from India, Rabindranath Tagore, wrote a song. Go alone. Nobody comes. Don't not do something because some, nobody following you. Do something because it's the right thing to do. If it's the right thing to do, you will feel happy to do it. Thank you. Okay, more. Yeah, another question over yes. there. Uh, you're talking about uh, the. Elegant simplicity. Sorry, yeah, you're, you're talking about the elegant simplicity yeah. and elegant simple way of living. Yeah. And you're talking about the Indian culture who has, uh, who has got that elegant simplicity in living right in its roots. But how do you feel when India right now is following the same paradigm of yeah. what the West is for, has been going through? So how do you feel about that process? Because everyone wants to... Um, from home-knitted whatever jumpers, everyone wants to go towards Nike. And from walking, everyone wants to own three cars. So how do you feel about that? Yeah. OK. Any other question? Yes, several. No, not coming back to you yet. Go on. Could you speak a little bit about the potential for sustainability in cities? It seems like the stuff you've discussed thus far okay. has been Cities. Could be seen as anti-urban. Hmm? Urban. Yes. Cities. Yeah. And then there was okay. another one. Yeah. Oh no no no! You've asked a question already. Anybody who hasn't? Somebody. Sorry, over there. Yeah, lots of people who haven't asked questions. I'm so sorry. I forgot to look over your side. Yes, you, you mentioned the, the the concept of eco to ego, or is it the other way around? My curiosity was. How do you think that, in terms of the Western concept of, of economic management, or is it mismanagement, 
and the problem of the, the crisis of profit maximization versus the sustain, sustainability of Earth. Do you really believe there's any chance of uh, the systems we use now ever compromising to create a better world that you discussed okay. earlier? So another question about um, the Western economy being so profit-driven and so completely yeah. embedded. Does sustainability stand any chance? We'll just take one other one question. Mr. Blue Man. Yeah. That I didn't see. Uh, yeah. Hello, Satish. Thank you very much for uh, sharing your thoughts and insights today. I was wondering if you could uh, share a little bit around what role you think technology will play towards a more sustainable state of our yeah. uh, global economy, global societies, because I work as a sustainability practitioner and it always yeah. seems to me as it's being the big panacea. And I was just wondering from a more humanistic yeah. point of view whether you could shed some more light on your yeah. views. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so let's start with this elegant simplicity and India being hooked on yeah. our path. Yeah, yeah. So um, <clears throat> it's a very unfortunate that India is following, and China is following the same path. Because India, um, a culture of Buddhism and elegant simplicity and living frugally for thousands of years, and China, Tao, Tao is a, one of the most wonderful ecological philosophy that you can imagine, but it's discarding. And the reason is that because of globalization, every country is obliged, almost forced, to be part of one world economy. You have to be a member of WTO. If you are not a member of TO, you are outside. If you are not a member of globalized economy, global economy, you are outside. So governments everywhere have become prisoners of this world system. And no country, apart from Cuba, which has survived because of the boycott, no country is outside this system. And we are now being driven by this new kind of paradigm, new paradigm, which is an old paradigm of profit and, and money and, and, and export, all that kind of economy. So that no one country can really survive and remain uh, aloof from this global economy. So global change has to come. So global ecology has to be the answer for global economy. And global ecology has to be um, uh, understood by people in India. And there are great movements in India. Vandana Shiva, my friend, is a great campaigner. And there are many, many, even Arundhati Roy, wonderful, uh, courageous campa campaigner. So if you go to India and you see at the grassroots level, there are thousands of projects going on in rural areas where they are doing organic farming, they are doing local economy, they are promoting crafts, they are promoting arts, and so on and so on. So there, is a, there are two Indias. One India is a kind of um, global India. The other India, which is not in the news, which we don't always read about, but rural India, still simplicity and elegance and traditional agriculture and craftsmanship and a beauty. They make things so beautiful. So, so if we can hopefully protect that India and this storm of capitalism and global economy and globalization, which is sweeping the world, will one day come to an end because it will run out of energy and it cannot go on. Sooner or later, it, it will collapse. So if we can build 
another India, which is already there, this, the poor India. But poor India may not be that poor, and, and the poverty may not be the problem. The, the wealth might be the problem, and all this uh, uh, extravagant uh, lifestyle and standard of living may be the problem. And the poor who live simple, elegant, sustainable, self-reliant, and, and sufficiency, we don't want so much efficiency, but we want sufficiency, sufficient life which people are living uh, and frugally. That might be the answer for the world. So uh, poverty, not, not deprivation, not starvation, not hunger, but poverty like the Christians called poverty. Uh, when you become a monk, you take a vow of ob obedience, chastity, and poverty. Poverty meant uh, voluntary simplicity. So if we can have acceptance of voluntary simplicity, that will be the answer for India as well as China as well okay, as the West. And then the second is the problem of, of cities. sustainability in cities. Cities, yeah. yeah. Again, again, we need to have new urban planners who can take up the challenge and say cities don't have to be deprived of nature. Actually, London originally, in, in the kind of 50, 60 years ago, was a very good city. You had Hampstead Heath, you had Richmond Park, you had a, um, Hyde Park, you had a, um, a Kensington Park, you had a Green Park, and, and there was a green belt around it. And the food, where Heathrow is now, airport, food was gr grown there. And the food came to London in our Covent Garden from about 50, 60 mile radius in the, in the morning vegetables. And then people took the vegetables in small shops. So we used to have cities which were more resilient, more ecological, more sustainable. But we have lost that. Now our aeroplanes are flying beans from Kenya and no food locally grown. And we have changed Covent Garden into a more boutique shops there and all vegetable shops somewhere gone. So nature and culture are not enemies. We can create new urban planning where nature and culture can live together. Why not have urban farms? Why not have some um, urban gardens, allotments in London so the people can go? I would like to say the people in cities like London should not work more than four days a week for money in banks or, or in shops in Oxford Street. And Friday, Saturday, Sunday, at least three days, people have time for themselves, time for the family, time for gardening, time for walking. I mean, we are suffering from a lot of obesity in, in uh, Western countries, in America and England. And we are suffering from a lot of illnesses, like heart disease and cancer and mental illness. It's partly because our National Health Service is no longer National Health Service, it's illness service. So if you want NHS, change NHS, like I'm saying change LSE name, change NHS from National Health Service to Natural Health Service. NHS, Natural Health Service. And everybody should be encouraged and educated and supported that they can go to walk. If you walk every day an hour or half an hour, work in the garden half an hour, you will be, and I will be very healthy. I am 74 years young. Because I work in the garden, I walk by the sea, I live in the country. I can live in the city as well, and I can go walking on Hampstead Heath or have allotment. Why not cities are made livable, human, rather than this industrial, busy, busy, working from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., six days a week, seven days a week. What kind of wealth we have? England is one of the richest countries in the world. Why do we have to work so hard for money, money, money? 
Let's live life. So urban planners, city planners, they need to redesign our cities for the future. Technology is the third. Yeah. yeah. Technology has a place, but you should keep it in its place. And do not allow, do not allow to dominate our lives. And think that all solutions will come from technology. Technology will solve it. Science will solve it. Whatever the problem, we have a blind faith now in science and technology, which used to be a faith in God and religion. God will save us. Now God is gone, we are, thanks to Richard Dawkins <laughs> and some others. God is gone, but they have put science. Richard Dawkins is, had a blind faith in science. There's a worse religion than you can imagine. So we think that technology will solve the problems. Technology will aid, will help. You need technology. Technology has always been there. But you need more than technology. You need human communities. You need human spirit. You need intelligence. You need creativity. You need human hands. We, as I said in my talk, that we have de-skilled ourselves. And we have, now, I come from Devon. I came to Paddington. There is a technology machine to take the ticket. And we have unemployment. And people are saying people are living on benefit. We have one point something million people unemployment. Why not have people checking your ticket? Why we have to have these machines, barriers that you can't go? Sometimes machines don't work, so people have to be there. So I think we have to go back to human contact, where human people are serving you. Now you go to a bank. They don't serve you. you. Everything is computerized. You phone somebody, nobody answers the telephone call. It's all press this, press that, go to our automatic service. If you want to know this, go to, go to that automatic uh, thing. Or if I want to find out, three miles away at Dartington, my station, Paddington, when I was coming, I wanted to phone and say what time my train is going. and. Uh, you generally book your ticket on internet, but I bought ticket from the station. Now they say, yes, what do you want to know? And I recognize the voice. I said, where are you speaking from? The man said, I'm speaking from Bangalore. I said, I want to know the train time from my three miles down the road, and I have to speak to Bangalore 5,000 miles away. And, and we say, we have got unemployment now in our country. No wonder that we have got unemployment in our country, because we have outsourced all our jobs. So technology has a place, but it is dominating our lives. And we have given so much faith that uh, we, we are losing human input. So human creativity, human ingenuity is as important, if not more important, than technology. Thank you very much. I want to declare that the Western profit versus um, sustainability was actually, I hope you feel the same as me, was totally answered in answer to the, uh, the Indian question. In fact, basically yeah. the message was the Indians are going our way and that's not the way to sustainability. Mm. Um, I don't think we've got time for any more, but I know that there are still people with hands up. Does anybody have anything really burning they just want to throw in as a question and we won't be able to answer it? Very, very quickly, yes. Could you please, this is a plea, could you please watch the Olympic Games as they come up? I live uh, pretty well at the end of the javelin throw, I think. And the allotments have gone from Hackney. 
So Satish has, has, has thrown out a wonderfully prov um, provocative suggestion to the LSE that you change your name. Um, I just want to say something about resurgence, because if you're interested in um, developing these sorts of ideas further, uh, what I've done is we've set up a little bookstall outside, um, dare I say it, a, a capitalist <coughs> bookstall, um, where we've got copies of Resurgence magazine, which Satish edits. Um, for those of you who don't know the magazine, um, it has a long pedigree. Uh, it's 45 years old next year, and it's the oldest environmental magazine in the country. And it brings together three themes, um, spirituality, ecology, and art and beauty. Um, and unlike many um, magazines on the environment and current affairs, um, what it is not is a magazine that gives you more things to worry about and more things to be fearful about. Um, the, the magazine, which comes out six times a year, is a, a collection of essays which are intended to be inspiring and enthusing. And we have um, 
renowned contributors and also new, new writers contributing to the magazine. So if you'd like to come out and have a look, um, please do. Please thumb through the back copies and treat it a little bit like a library. Um, uh, if you do decide to, to uh, subscribe to the magazine, we'll give you one of Satish's books for free with your subscription. Um, and Resurgence also runs a number of events, um, and our next one is next May, um, down in Devon, which is to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the, the birth of Rabindranath Tagore. Um, we haven't got any leaflets to give you, but we do have a flyer like this, and if you want to sign up to our um, sheet and give us your email address, uh, we can send you details of it when we, uh, when we, when we can in due course. So the, the, uh, the little bookstore is outside there with a number of Satish's books and Resurgence magazine. So please to come and have a look. And Satish will sign books uh, if you wish. Thanks. Thank you.